Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is a multi-doctor interview covering the COVID area management of academic and clinical education at the Illinois College of Optometry and its clinic, the Illinois Eye Institute. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Nora Kuby, who serves as a primary care and ocular disease resident at ICO. Welcome, Dr. Kuby, to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure because you bring a very unique perspective to this whole thing. When COVID hit last March, you were finishing your optometric education and you were preparing for graduation and ultimately this residency. <laughs> so can you give a little look back as to what it was like in that time as an optometry student and what difficulties you might have felt or faced? Yeah, I mean, I still can remember the first day, you know, the first week where it happened at first it was like snow day and then it was like this is not a snow day <laughs> um no i mean i think we all quickly realized the gravity of the situation went from hopes of oh no do you think they're gonna delay graduation or to you know graduation's definitely canceled <laughs> to mm -hmm. next year's graduation is probably canceled and you know i think it hit us pretty quickly um and, how much you... this was going to change and you didn't get a chance to really see your classmates at the end of the four years, which is a big part of, you know, the whole wrap up. No, it was it was very difficult. I mean, I think there's a lot of loss associated with COVID, even apart from, you know, people who have actually lost loved ones, which, you know, is, is the biggest loss. But there's also the loss of all these important um, rituals and things that we all look forward to, these milestones in life. What you know, for some people, it's graduation. It certainly was for us. Um, just being there with your family and friends for these special moments. We'd, we'd been in the trenches together for three years in optometry school. And then we all went across the country and even across the world for a few of us. And that was supposed to be, you know, that week was supposed to be our big reunion and celebration of all we've accomplished. And it did, it felt like it was taken from us and it was hard. Now, you were already planning to do a residency, or was that did that process shake up your your plans in any way? <laughs> Honestly, the timing was funny because the match day when we found out our residency was the day that ICO got shut down and we all got wow. sent home. <laughs> um, so we applied for residency, you know, not knowing at all the circumstances that we'd be doing the residency under. So it was a bit of a surprise. We were already locked in. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So tell me a little bit about the effects of the changes on your clinical rotations. You're, you're in this late stage education where it's all about clinical experiences. What was different um, that, you know, people who went through the normal path that you didn't get to experience? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it was right at the beginning of the quarter. So out of our four externships that we have fourth year, it was one out of the four. So that's a big chunk of clinical experience in person that we weren't getting. Um, I think our, our faculty and attendings did a really good job under the circumstances. 
building up case discussions. Um, you know, they'd send us materials in advance, whether journal articles, cases. Sometimes we would present ourselves um, and talk about cases. And I did get a lot from those sessions, but I don't think anything can replace being in a room with a patient. When did you end up starting your residency? Was it on time? And how was that first, you know, sort of introduction to, for you? Was it uh, odd because there weren't a lot of patients and, and people around? Uh, I'm curious what it was like at the beginning of your residency. Yeah, so we actually started our residency on time. Um, okay. It was the beginning of July. Uh, it was definitely a little bit of a shock to the system to go from not seeing any patients until March to seeing I mean, you know, under the circumstances, a decent amount of patients right away in July. It was like, I haven't used a slit lamp for four months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, let alone getting adjusted to, I'm the doctor now. Uh, especially, I think some of the residents like to joke that you initially have this imposter syndrome because you've been a student for so long and looked up to your faculty mentors. And all of a sudden you're you're kind of one of the faculty. And I think I think that imposter syndrome was even amplified by the fact that we never got to walk across the stage. Yeah. So there was no moment where you're like, this this is happening. So, you know, it was a steep learning curve. And I think we all, you know, took the mantle and and took the role on quickly, but it was an adjustment. And the college did a really cautious and appropriate job of bringing students in, quarantining those that traveled. It sounds like that started off pretty well. And then you get into the throes of actually interacting with the new students, those that are advancing into their clinical careers. Did that go without a hitch or were there challenges to that that were special again? Yeah, I mean, I think at first everyone's a little hesitant when you go from quarantining and doing all your remote education to all of a sudden being back in person. But I think everyone, students, faculty, residents, once we got onto campus and saw how thorough all the PPE measures were, um, the, you know, the rules with quarantining, the screening questions, when you see how thoroughly, you know, we were shut down for a good maybe month and a half while, while the administration put together all these policies. And you can tell that they're airtight um, so once you're there, you're like, actually, this isn't as scary as I thought it would be. And I'm just happy to be back seeing patients, you know, doing what I love and what I'm here to do. So I think the, the it passes quickly, the shock that you're with people again. Right. I mean, sometimes it's that sort of proverbial getting back on the bike. You, you just all of a sudden yeah. you do it and and you're glad somebody picked you up, dusted you off and got you ready. So I know that you aren't an integral part of having created something called the CARES team. We've got you know another speaker that speaks to that specifically. But tell us a little bit about how the I Institute has done this triage process and how much of that is still in place today, because I know you're getting back to routine eye exams and you know general mm -hmm. eye services. But at the beginning, it was about those who needed the care first. How has that looked from your perspective? Yeah, so initially, pretty much all routine primary care exams were canceled. You know, we didn't think anyone needed to risk exposure to get eyeglasses filled. Um, we never shut down urgent care. Um, our 24-hour urgent wow. care was always open and always manned by the residents. So the batch of residents prior to us was, um, you know, started during COVID um, before July. Uh, and then we took over. So the residents have been doing that in consultation with our attendings. Um, students didn't come back till June or July. 
So they waited the longest to bring students back because, you know, they're the lifeblood of ICO. And I think they wanted to make sure they brought them back in a way that felt really safe for them and comfortable. So as you have worked in this triage process, as your group of residents took over, you've had to work through this process of deciding which which case sounds like it needs care now, which one can be put off. It sounds like a you know, the TV show MASH that represented the Korean War triage, <laughs> but it's it's not quite life and death like that. But there are certain cases of morbidity and mortality you have to be highly contemplative of. How has that looked to you when you saw the patients yourself? As Have you done a good job of picking the right ones to, to examine? Yeah, I think on the whole, you, you get better at doing that really quickly. I think our first week on call for urgent care, we definitely, you know, would go to campus and see a patient that ended up being dry eye or allergies just because we were a little more cautious right off the bat. But as you get, as your ears get more fine-tuned and your, your questioning techniques get better, you start to tease out what's really going on. Um, and in terms of urgent care, at least, I think we're definitely better at deciding who to see, especially after hours. Um, the I Institute is doing primary care again at this time. We're not at full volume, of course, but we've definitely increased it since the beginning of the pandemic. I feel like they've done it to a level that's safe and it doesn't feel rushed. We have plenty of time to clean the rooms in between and be really careful about it. Is there a learning in this that the tradition of somebody calls, they have an urgent issue, we just get them in a slot and bring them in, that might be applicable not only at the Eye Institute, but at primary care practices across the nation where we think a little differently about how to teach people who do the listening and maybe even looking, whether it's photos or some other information sharing process, that will we'll stick now, that we might tell some people differently about when they need care than we used to? That's a good question. I mean, I've, I've never, I haven't had a lot of experience in private practice. I had one externship there, but um, you know, it usually is, you know, technicians or a front desk staff that's triaging more often as opposed to a doctor. And many of us residents will go on to work in private practices. So I do think there's some things we can bring with us. Yeah. Um, you know, it, <laughs> it'll be an it'll be an education process, you know, we're, you know, working with our future staff. But I definitely feel like I have some pearls to pass on. I do, too. And I think there is a real novel lot learning that can come from those of you who went through this in the schools and colleges and how those are the rest that really made it up as they went along with various resources at their discretion to read and to learn. Um, a lot of independent practices got through it just fine. But there's some pretty interesting uh, staff training and you know phone training and triage processes that could come out of this. Let's shift to your view of the students today, because you talked about not really mm -hmm. having the curtain drop and this odd process of going from being a student to being a doctor. Um, the educational process, as you see the students going through this, and now you're more of in a teaching role, you probably have a great amount of empathy for the studying and learning they've got. What does their <laughs> studying and learning yeah. look like from your perspective? Um, in terms of their more like didactic studying for the classroom and exams, I feel like they're working as hard as ever. Um, they have to be independent and kind of driven. Like they have to have that discipline to watch the lectures and do this stuff on their own because um, most of it is being done, you know, some students might use the library, but most students are at home doing this. Um, and we have a really ambitious, hardworking crop of students. So 
I feel like they're keeping up with it, but I think it's a little more mentally exhausting than it used to be because they don't have the same camaraderie and support right in front of them that they used to. It's, it's there, but they're not sitting next to their classmates doing it. And as hard as it was for you to remember, you know, each dial in the slit lamp after a few months off, I'm sure that <laughs> lack of in-person clinical skills training has affected them too. I think so. I, I think they all come back a little rusty the first week. I, we've all been impressed how quickly they pick everything back up. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of empathy there. I know that I felt rusty my first week or two back, even as a doctor. So, you know, we're, we're, we're all cognizant of the challenges that we're all facing. I think we're being more patient with each other, especially with the students. Um, we couldn't do this without them. You know, we are seeing a decent amount of patients now safely and without the students, like I said, they're the lifeblood without them working up all the patients. We couldn't do what we do. Oh, that's awesome. So you're watching the Illinois Institute implement a number of different novel patient care services and cleaning processes. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Um, it, it, at first it did feel like I cleaned as much as I saw patients. Um, <laughs> We, we had really thorough education at the beginning in terms of donning and doffing PPE and how to clean the rooms. There were training videos that everyone watched. Um, the rooms are thoroughly cleaned by the student between every patient encounter. We have signs outside that say like ready with a green side and then the red side says like not ready yet. And so they, you know, they turn that accordingly as soon as they bring a new patient in, they turn it back to red so there's no ambiguity. Um, we all wear double masks, which I think has, is really efficient resource-wise. We all get a KN95 to wear for that week of clinic. So for most students, that's only a few shifts. And then they, they do a fresh surgical mask at the beginning of every shift that they throw out at the end. Okay. Um, that way it allows you to conserve the, the scarcer KN95 and still have a fresh outer mask every shift. A lot of clinicians have learned how to talk to patients with masks, you know, on all parties. Have you had, you know, any interesting <laughs> learnings of communication with all this gear on? Yes. Um, I think we've all had plenty of encounters where you've had to tell the patient to pull their mask back up about 10 times. Um, a lot of our patients are elderly too, hard of hearing. Um, you know, some of them might have like respiratory issues and, you know, it, it's tempting for them to keep pulling it down. So we have to have a firm message but it can be hard to tell a patient something really important about their healthcare through two layers of masks on your end and one or two on their end. You know, telling a patient they have glaucoma, giving them the diagnosis, telling them they're going to be on drops or treatment maybe forever. It's like this really that you know that it's a potentially blinding disease. That's big news to deliver. And when it's muffled through masks, I mean, you, you have to use your eye contact and your body language. And it definitely takes more work to get your message across. But, I, you know, I think we're doing it. So talk about how this has affected you personally. There have been, for everybody, rough times. But I think you hit one of those interesting transition <laughs> points where it had to be as hard as it was for anybody. And um being a little vulnerable, I'm sure. What, what's it been like for you personally? It's been hard. And I, I think I'll be the first to tell you that 
it's it's definitely not all smiles. I think we've all had days where you, you come home with a headache from your mask being around your ears all day and a tough day with patients and you might cry a little and then you just, <laughs> you know, get it out of your system and go to work the next day feeling a little better. But, you know, the day, the days can be hard, but you will also have those rewarding experiences in clinic and with your colleagues that make it worth it. But, um, you know, it's, I, I think one of the things I was looking forward to in residency besides the clinical training that I'm obviously still getting is the camaraderie that I would have with my colleagues, my faculty mentors, you know, you go to conferences together, you celebrate your accomplishments, presentations, um, you know, maybe you go out for drinks after one of the events you do. And, and now it's a little bit more um, all work. I don't want to say no play, but very little. <laughs> so sometimes we miss out on those bonding experiences. We do the best we can, but um, that's been something that we all wish we could have more of. Yeah. Do you personally have a outlet that you use to keep yourself mentally and physically healthy? Um, you know, whether it's books <laughs> or music or sports, anything that you do? Yeah. Um, I gotta say it's my dog, Marcel. I, I think I sound like a broken record to anyone who's known me at ICO. I used to do the ICO Instagram. So Marcel made a lot of appearances there as a student. <laughs> um, but he, he was my rock during optometry school and, and he still is now, you know, there's nothing like a good puppy cuddle, but um, you know, I, my husband's here. So I have, I have my little family. I do read books. I think it's important to remind students too to read for fun sometimes, not just reading to study. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just having a strong support system. My, my co-residents are lovely and intelligent and supportive. Um, and we're always there for each other. So does this COVID era process of a residency that's not exactly how you envisioned it, feel like it's gonna change your path forward, whether you go into practice or stay in academics? Have you thought about that yet or just not yet there for that decision? It's a good question. Um, I try to remain really cognizant of the fact that the things that I, that are not as good about residency now are due to COVID and nothing about my program or academia. Um, I know those frustrations would be with me at any job. So <laughs> I don't hold it against them. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty, I feel confident that I want to teach in some capacity. I don't know if it'll be full or part-time. Um, I am from Arizona and I would like to oh. go back there at some point, but you know, there's a school there and, uh, you could always be a preceptor at an externship site. But I did this residency because I admired and you know wanted to follow in the footsteps of some of my own faculty mentors um, when I was a student. And, and I still feel inspired by them and I'm trying to do as good of a job for my students now as they did for me. Well, I can tell you that the people that are around you that nominated you for this conversation feel like you've really done the job that is the prototype. And to all of your classmates who graduated in 2020, I wish them great success. And of course, for you, a fruitful career, one that always gives you an opportunity <laughs> to remember this ICO pandemic time is something that really changed you for the better. Thanks for dealing so strongly with it. And we wish you great success. Thank you so much. You know, it's it's been character building for better or worse. I don't think any of us are going to forget this time. 
And I think we're all gonna come out stronger, more empathetic, better clinicians on the other side. This perspective on the story of COVID era management by the Illinois College of Optometry and its clinic, the Illinois Eye Institute, comes from Dr. Stephanie Messner, who serves as Vice President and Dean for Academic Affairs at ICO. Welcome, Dr. Messner. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It really inspiring to think about how a large-scale academic institution and clinical service has had to change. And I guess I'd like to start because of your background with the academics and, and talk a little bit about how when COVID hit, you had to make these quick adjustments to online education after having a real basis in in-person education. What was that like at the beginning? Well, it was a challenge. I mean, it was we were very busy for a period of time. Um, fortunately, a number of years ago, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, we invested in a lecture capture system that records automatically every lecture that's given at the institution and archives those. Um, so we had archived lectures and had content ready to push out. Um, with that said, obviously, certain disciplines require more updating from year to year than others. Um, so some faculty members did come in to the lecture center and record new lectures that then were pushed out on the online format for our students. And we actually started doing that, oh, a couple weeks before the governor in Illinois put forth our stay-at-home order. Um, we knew that with having 140, 150 students in a lecture hall, that maybe wasn't the best situation as cases were rising in Illinois. So we proactively did that and were really pretty well in line by the time we had our stay at home order. It's a long cry from uh, lecture notes that were shared, you know, many moons ago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so are these... Um, is this kind of the new norm then that recorded lectures are something that students can choose as opposed to a in-person lecture or are, um, tell me about that. Well, you know, we encourage students to come to lecture when we have live lecture. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that just viewing the lecture online, there is the potential to miss certain aspects of um, the educational process. You know, you may have a question that occurs and you don't get an immediate answer to it if you're not in the lecture center and raising your hand. With that said, as you can probably predict, we have a certain cadre of students who choose to do all of their lecture viewing, even pre-COVID, through the online system. Um, there are others who choose to do most of their learning through the live lectures, but I think the real advantage to the lecture capture system is that a student can sit in the lecture center sit back and listen to what the faculty member is saying without having to take a lot of notes. And then if they didn't get something or there was something that they wanted to hear again, they could go back and look that up in the archive and listen to it, listen to the whole lecture again, slow it down for certain portions, speed it up for others. We, we joke that there are certain faculty members that students listen to on 1.4 times because they tend to be slower in their delivery. So it, it, it's been a great learning tool for the students, though, and certainly has been extremely valuable to us in the COVID realm. So I'm really curious about how examinations are administered. I mean, this is another place where maybe it's new and different, or maybe you're using a historical transition to different types of technology, but how do examinations happen? Well, we use technology called ExamSoft where students bring their own device to an exam. The examination is pushed out into the person's device and they take the test online. 
Now, the technology locks the computer down so that the student can't go anywhere else other than to that examination. Up until COVID, we had been using that technology for the past couple of years, um, but all of the students would gather in the lecture center and we would proctor it in that fashion. When we went into our shutdown and our students left and went home, we couldn't do that any longer. So we made some changes um, in our testing format and our test construction, I guess. We asked more higher level questions that were synthesis of information rather than regurgitation of information. Um, there's always some of those questions in exams, but we went to more of those questions and we went, then we allowed the test to be open book. And uh, the technology of the ExamSoft product enables you to scramble questions. So the number one question on my exam is maybe the number seven question on your exam and the number 20 question on somebody else's exam. So students would have had great difficulty texting each other and saying, hey, what did you put for this particular question? You know, and, and I also will say that we did appeal to the student's sense of honor and that, you know, this is a challenging time for everybody and we expect you to behave in a professional manner. And I think that, that for the most part, we did. Now, once we got through that first um, half quarter or so, or three quarters of a quarter, we then invested in additional technology through ExamSoft that does remote proctoring too. So ExamSoft proctor uh, can watch through the student's camera and see what they're doing at all times. It's very expensive to do that. It's It's been a big expense for us. But I think that um, once we were able to do that, we have a better way of um, demonstrating integrity of our examinations to our accreditors, for example. Sure. So I'm also interested in how you use technology to connect with students. Uh, if I understand the school uses Microsoft Teams, um, did you have certain ways of teaching using technology that you came up with? And, and does any of that persist now into this uh, academic year? Well, we're continuing to deliver all of our lectures remotely. Uh, again, just the number of students we have to get that many student people together in a room um, is not appropriate. Uh, we have been using Teams and the Teams is used for laboratories in some instances. For example, a neuroanatomy laboratory can very nicely be done online um, with looking at various images and discussing things with students. Many of our courses have recitation sessions where the faculty, again, will do that portion live with smaller groups. Um, and our clinical program during the shutdown was purely online as well. Now, we weren't doing telehealth with students. We were with residents, but not with students. But we did do case discussions with small groups, just as we would if we had a live patient in front of us. So tell me about the fourth year students that were headed toward graduation. How were you able to be sure they met it? I've heard stories about it being a little bit of a fire drill, but how did you uh, give them the assurance that they were going to be on track? Well, obviously it was a big concern for, for our fourth year students. They wanted to graduate. They wanted to be able to get out into practice. 
Um, so the first thing I did was we I assembled my team and said, we've got to look at our student logs, our students' patient encounter logs to see where they are with patient encounters at this point in time. And what we found was really pretty interesting. We found that by the time we were going into lockdown, our students in the graduating class of 2020 had already seen the same number of live patients or more on average than our students for the class of 2019. Um, I also uh, had students then in the fourth year do remote clinic, and those were logged as virtual examinations or virtual patient encounters. Um, faculty still assessed students. For example, if I were in virtual clinic with my students, at the end of the session, I would fill out the same evaluation form as I filled out for a student in regular clinic. And um, obviously technical skills is not something that I would have been evaluating, but all of the thought process that goes along to patient management um, and diagnosis was still evaluated. So I think that we were in a pretty good position to defend to anybody who would question us that we were um, confident that our students were where they needed to be to get into practice. I'll be honest with you, it's, it's been a little bit more of a concern with our current fourth year students. Yeah. Now they are seeing patients live, but they had a little bit of a shutdown while they were third years. And I worry about if we have another shutdown, are we going to be able to get them to where they need to be? Fortunately, they've been very busy with patient care to date and we're keeping everything on track. So. Knock on wood, we're going to continue to do that. Are the schools and colleges in general talking about this and collaborating on best practices that one might use in this school and another so you all can and try to implement the most ideal manner? Well, the, um, there's an organization called the Associations, the Association of Schools and Colleges of Optometry, or ASCO. And once the pandemic hit in full force. Um, ASCO organized a lot of different online meetings for various interest groups within the ASCO community. So the uh, deans and presidents were meeting pretty much weekly. The chief academic officers were meeting weekly. The clinic directors were meeting weekly. And there was a lot of co collaboration and discussion on best practices, what was working, what wasn't working. And it was really interesting to hear what other programs were doing and you know, we learned a lot from each other, but I think one of the things we learned was that um, all of our faculty were very creative during this process. And there were really a lot of, of interesting concepts and different methods of educating our students that came out of this. That's wonderful. You talked a little bit about labs that could be supported through, say, a Microsoft Teams meeting, like a neuroanatomy lab. But what about clinical instruction labs, you know, the learning to do gunioscopy or binocular indirect or just operating slit lamp for some of the earlier in-process students? How have you had to deal with those? Well, that was a big challenge for us. And, and we did still hold some online laboratories that were primarily demonstration labs. But we know that we have to teach the students to do the techniques. Just watching it isn't going to isn't going to do the job. So we planned right from the start that we would be bringing students back early in the summer to complete those laboratories and those skills. So our students who were first years came back in July and completed all of the first year labs in July. 
Our students who were second years fortunately had already learned all of the techniques that they needed to do a comprehensive eye examination. And when they came back, they had to do practicals on that. Um, so we had most of that covered. There were a couple of other labs that we missed out in clinical-based labs. Our um, second year students missed out on a low vision laboratory. So that was done also in return in the summer. Now for the for the second year students, it wasn't really an early return because as third years, they would have been on campus anyhow. But we managed to fit all of that in during that summer period. I was disappointed. For, yeah, the big one though is our third year students have the injections and minor surgical procedures laboratories. Um, so we are now offering that every quarter so that for our students who are on externship, they will take that course when they are on campus. I know everything is virtual, but what have you done to sort of amplify and strengthen the deliverables that you had to run at so quickly in the spring? Well, as I mentioned before, the faculty really have learned a lot about what works well and what doesn't work so well. My biggest concern with the restart this fall was bringing in a new first year class where the students don't know each other, they don't know the faculty, they don't know ICO. And uh, to make sure we found ways to engage them in the institution. And most courses do have some um, synchronous learning. So there are opportunities for students and faculty to speak to one another and collaborate in real time. Um, we had a virtual orientation and some live things in orientation in small groups, and our student affairs office did a great job with that. Unfortunately, all of the social events that we normally have didn't happen. We didn't have our white coat ceremony. We didn't have ICO Olympics. Uh, but despite all of those things, I'm really proud of the way our first year students have risen to the occasion. They are engaged. They are performing well. Um, it's got to be tough for them. And, and I'm looking forward to a day, hopefully in the not too distant future, where we can have them back on campus on a full-time basis. You know, they are on campus for laboratories. They are still getting their optometry laboratories and some other labs that are live. And all of our clinical care is live. And we include first-year students in clinical care. Um, they will come in and, and do a clinical assistant program where they will do some of the skills that they've learned in lab on our patient base, and they will assist the third or fourth year student they're working with with some of the skills that they're doing as well. It gives them a great opportunity to see what our patient um, operations are like, to understand our patient population, and to listen and learn from watching the communication between the student and the patient and the faculty member and the patient. So I guess in conclusion, what kind of COVID era changes to academics, clinical labs and such, do you see persisting into the future? Is there some novel way of teaching or training that you think really has legs, even when perhaps a year from now, everyone's able to be back in person? Well, I think that one of the things that we're looking to do is to start to engage our students in telehealth. Um, we have a project that we're working on where we may be um, engaging in some comprehensive exams in telehealth, vision therapy, as well as urgent care. Uh, so that's one thing that I think is going to come out of this. The other thing is that I think that we're learning that there are a lot of different ways to push out content to students. It doesn't just have to be the sage on the stage talking at students. 
It can be putting content online for students to review before they come to class and using class time to solve optics problems or discuss cases or interpret OCTs or do any one of a number of things. So I see more and more of that um, flipped classroom, if you will, where the content is delivered prior and it's applied during the class then. I think there's an incredible potential there. And it's interesting, some of the ideas you've had around urgent care or say vision therapy services that might be delivered with um, unique and different ways are applicable to private practice. I mean, doctors who go through this today and uh, as a student may have a, a new and different way of delivering practice protocols in just a few years when they're out and uh, and have achieved their, their OD degree. That's super interesting to see what they might be able to bring in terms of new mindsets. We all want to be part of the patient experience, but they're living this very different life out of necessity. Mm -hmm. It could be a really interesting time when they get into practice. I think so. And I think they're going to be able to, to apply a lot of these lessons into their practices and, and to see what works and what maybe didn't work as well and um, move forward from there. Well, this ICO story of how you've gotten through the COVID era is really interesting. Unfortunately, it's not done. And so I've really got a great appreciation for what you did through the academics and clinical training side and appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for sharing this successful story. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to tell it. In telling the perspective of the story of COVID era management at the Illinois College of Optometry and its clinic, the Illinois Institute, I'm welcoming today, Dr. Len Messner. Dr. Messner is the Vice President for Strategy and Institutional Advancement, and I'm really glad to have you here, Dr. Messner. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy holidays and hope you're well. We are here well, and I'm glad to get this perspective from you. When COVID hit last March, what was the most substantial impact on that historical pick process of patient care that happened at the Institute? Yeah, well, is is certainly you're aware, and as all providers are aware, we we had to transition into something that was really quite new for all of us. Uh, we had been talking about telemedicine, we had been dabbling in telemedicine, and then we had to jump into the pool, into the deep end, and figure it out very very quickly. So on the patient care side, uh, as we have a largely disease laden population, uh, and uh, of course, a lot of chronic disease, a lot of uh, vision-threatening disease that needs to be evaluated, followed up upon, so on and so forth. Uh, it was really uh, a matter of uh, trying to determine very quickly what would be the best workflow, what would be the best protocol, uh, really having very little to very, very, very little experience in this area. No one did. So um, Dr. Christina Moret and Christina did just a fabulous job of putting together our uh, our CARES team. And it was composed of individuals from the various clinical service areas, subspecialty areas to uh, essentially review the cases twice a day that the, re the resident on call was fielding to determine what needed to be, what was urgent, what was emergent, what needed to be seen right away versus those that we could defer versus those that we could pretty much manage right for uh, empirically. On the telehealth side, uh, the I, I have to tell you, the residents got pretty good at being able to direct the patients into how to use their cell phones, how to take the appropriate selfie, the angle that they were looking for, the images that they, they were looking for, 
uh, so on and so forth. So to a large extent, that went pretty smoothly. Um, patient care, direct patient care, uh, we, uh, we, we, we cut our staff back to only those absolutely essential in order to see the patients. Um, I would be remiss if I did not uh, echo my, uh, my, my, great, uh, uh, my, my, my great thanks and, and re really respect for our compliance officer, Michael Butts. Michael did just a fabulous job of setting up the workflows and we making sure that patients, as soon as they hit the door, they were essentially going from station to station. Of course, there were the dividers, uh, the plexiglass uh, dividers put up, the you know the the uh, the posters on the on the floor, where to stand, how to distance, so on and so forth. And then on the care side, um, certainly our technicians did a fabulous job. Our students were not involved in patient care in the early days. It was just the providers and the technicians. The the techs just they they really hit it out of the ballpark, keeping patients moving from from room to room and, and making sure that the rooms were, uh, were wiped down, they were cleaned afterwards so that everything functioned in a fairly efficient manner. I have to tell you personally, uh, Scott, it, it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. Uh, not only did we have to go back and learn to do a lot of tasks that we would delegate to technicians or optometry students like uh, oh, how to turn on the eye chart, um, uh, learning how I, I got pretty good at learning how to use a tono pen, um, but it, it really I, the, our, our our patients, of course, were just so were, were so happy that we were be able to see them, and, and I think that it went uh, it, it went doubly that for uh, for the providers just being able to provide services uh, in, in this time of need, and then gradually from there we shifted into chronic disease management that was more vision threatening, pure chronic disease, and then. Uh, ultimately transitioning over to comprehensive eye and vision care. You did a lot of the same kind of things that the independent ECP did in their practice, but on a much larger scale. I want to focus on that technician part. You must have had a series of meetings around what's the cleaning protocol. You had advice from the outside. You were reading, I'm sure, governmental advice, and then where patients go and how they sit and, and, and who moves them where. Can you just give a little insight to that? Because I know that the independent ECP sort of did it on their own. They yeah. watched a couple of webinars, read a few articles. How did you do it at such a large scale? Well, that's pretty much what we did as well. Uh, not, okay. not, a, not a lot of experience that anyone had to fall back upon. Um, I, I mentioned Michael Butts earlier, our chief of staff, Dr. Shiglazian. Mike Shiglazian uh, was was just incredible and uh, in, in his efforts in really just putting parsing up, putting all of this stuff together from the CDC to the Illinois Department of Public Health, uh, through the, the Academy of Ophthalmology, the Academy of Optometry, just every bit of information that as you know, uh, was literally changing on a daily basis. So as we would piece things together, um, I think you can best uh, phrase it, or I can best phrase it at any rate, as really building upon our previous work. We, we tried to be very guideline specific, um, even though the guidelines were, were quickly changing. But uh, our thought from the very beginning was the more we follow the guidelines, uh, uh, the better we'll probably be, the less mistakes we'll make, and the, the less the likelihood of transmission of the virus. What was the PPE experience then, and how much of that has carried through today? What's the PPE experience in today's COVID 
era delivery of uh, patient care. Yeah. Well, of course, early on, everybody was scrambling for PPE as there was a huge, uh, you know, there was a huge need and, 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 and the supply was rather limited. Uh, we were pretty fortunate in being able to essentially find some of the appropriate channels uh, through the state of Illinois, through the governor's office. Uh, we were able to get uh, a rather large supply right up front of, uh, of, of PPE, particularly as it relates to, as it related to masks and gloves. Um, but then there are the incidental parts uh, that you really just need to create on your own. And our facilities team in conjunction with our, uh, with our compliance officer, uh, determining, you know, how do you, how do you make these dividers? How do you create plexiglass dividers? Where do you put them? How do you mount them? Um, not a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, so again, just going back, uh, relying upon uh, CDC guidelines and, and our own state of Illinois healthcare guidelines, we pieced it together. And as I said before, really, really, really just build on our previous work. How much of it sustains today as patient care delivery is happening? Um, have you reduced, you know, uh, changed, or are you pretty much in the same state you've been all these six, seven months? Yeah, nearly 100%. Nearly 100%. The only thing that's changed is the level of care delivery. Initially, of course, we were just seeing emergency and, and, and urgent care cases. Um, and then from there, we, we ramped up, ramped up. Right now, I would say that we are probably at around 80% of pre-COVID levels. So the main thing that has changed has been the level of clinical activity, the number of patients that are being seen. And then with that, the amount of staff that uh, is on site as well. Initially, we just started with providers and technicians, a very skeleton staff. And, and then from there, pretty much built back into our, uh, our what I would say, our normal complement of, uh, of clinical staff, support staff and providers. I'm really curious if there's any degree of coordination or interaction between schools and colleges of optometry. We're able to share best practices or has each of the colleges been sort of on its own? No, uh, uh, there, 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 of course, has been a lot of crosstalk, a lot of sharing of information. I know that, uh, for instance, the, uh, the clinic administrators group was uh, meeting on a weekly basis uh, to share best practice ideas and compare information as it relates to what are the guidelines. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of sharing of information, uh, particularly at the at the clinic director's level and then you know, through other you know, through, through some of the other uh, organizations, special interest groups. Um, it's uh, it, it continues to be uh, to be quite the challenge. So as the strategy and innovation mindset leader, you talked about telehealth services and how you had been thinking about them and, and developing pilots. Where do you see telehealth becoming more entrenched in optometry? A lot of independent doctors have thought about how they use it. And there are some models where it's almost a virtual eye exam with a doctor somewhere else. Yeah. There are some models where it's on patient triage and just getting to those disease-laden patients, as you spoke about, or urgent cases. I'd be really interested in your perspective of what COVID has done to sort of advance teleoptometry to the future. Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Scott. I'm glad you asked it because I think that that uh, if there is, I, I think that there are several nuggets. There are uh, there are uh, several clear positives that we can walk away from COVID with. Uh, one certainly has been the emergence of telehealth. Um, 
obviously on the patient triage, the urgent care side, being able to check in. And then, as I mentioned before, novel ways of doing an examination, getting pa teaching patients how to hold their camera to get the appropriate images, how to get a visual acuity and, you know, in this virtual scenario. Before that, um, we were quite interested in telehealth in a, in a variety of areas, one being the management of our urgent care cases and really trying to improve access to care that way and looking at various platforms and looking at various uh, cloud-based options in order to share information. And to be honest with you, uh, many of our colleagues, uh, our, our ophthalmic colleagues in other countries are, I think, way ahead of us uh, mm. in that area, of course, in Europe and Southeast Asia, Australia. I think to a large extent, we've learned from, from their experiences. Um, but independent, somewhat independent of that, of course, we were interested in looking at this whole burgeoning area that I know you and I have had some discussions on in the past, and that is performing comprehensive eye care as an alternative to in-person care in select instances. Uh, and of course, the technology, the way it's ramped up um, and continues to improve. I, improve. I, I think that COVID certainly has pushed things uh, further, further down the line that way. Uh, I think the big thing from a provider standpoint is if you're doing this, um, how are you going to be reimbursed? And uh, certainly CMS and the insurance companies have had to fall in the line. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes a tragedy, a, a tragedy like COVID in order to really move the needle. Uh, I think we've certainly seen that. My personal opinion is toothpaste is out of the tube. I, I don't see it going back. I have read recently that there has been uh, a, a, bit, a, a bit less telehealth now, that, mm -hmm. uh, that all providers are getting a bit more back into in-person care. Uh, but I don't think there's any question the the uh, the patient convenience, the access to care issues, um, the the improvement in technology. Uh, telehealth is here to stay. I, I really think that all all optometrists, all ophthalmic providers need to need to recognize that, understand it, uh, and embrace this as simply another way of seeing patients. Uh, no, we can't be compromising our standards, our integrity, the quality of the services that we provide. You know, but, but I would say that that's probably one of the big ones is to you know, continue to follow the advances in, in telehealth. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Len Messner, for your perspectives. Um, you and all of your colleagues at ICO have given us a great perspective uh, in this COVID era challenge, and we're really thrilled to see the success that you've met. Uh, we appreciate your time today. It's a real pleasure, Scott, speaking with you. This is another perspective story about the COVID era management by the Illinois College of Optometry and its clinic, the Illinois Eye Institute. And today we have Moretton, who serves as Chief of Urgent Eye Care Services at ICO. Welcome, Dr. Moretton. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me today. Well, thanks for joining in this group presentation around the topic of how a large-scale facility like IEI is managed through the process of the COVID era, both at the early day and today. And I guess we'll start at the early point. You were part of a group that dealt with this patient care prioritization, uh, March, April. I would really love to hear more about in detail about what you guys call a CARES team. 
All right, Scott. Well, it's crazy to think back to March from now, which is crazy that so much time has passed. Um, but at the beginning of COVID, just like everyone else, it was a really big challenge to figure out how we were going to deal with all of our patients coming through. Um, our facility has over 50 providers and there was an initial group collaboration to figure out how we're going to deal with all the patients that all of these practitioners serve. And as you mentioned, I'm the chief of urgent care. So all of that fell onto our service and we're heavily run by residents um, who field after hours calls. So what we did was we did come up with a care team with our IEI administrative staff. And we had six or seven of us that actually met twice a day virtually to go through all of the calls that we received. Um, and we would have ourselves plus the residents fielding the calls, talking to patients, and we would all come together and discuss what was truly best for the patient because these were unprecedented times. And we wanted to make sure that we were doing what was best for the patient at the end of the day. And quite frankly, at the beginning, none of us knew what we were doing, but we had to talk it through all together. And it got more comfortable as the weeks went on. Um, but I found that this meeting that we had twice a day, really collaborating people of anterior segment, posterior segment, neuro, we were able to really do what was best for the patient and see them if it was really necessary. And as you mentioned, trying to figure out how we could treat some of the more common things virtually. Um, so things even like abrasions, RCEs, um, hordeola. We had the use of photography, um, video, chat, et cetera, and even traditional phone calls. Some of our elderly patients couldn't figure out how to use photos, videos, as most of you can relate to. So we tried to utilize whatever technology we could for the patient. And in some cases, we were able to get great photos and we would all share and discuss and figure out what was best for this patient. Um, and now we're at the point where we are seeing patients regularly um, and we're almost back to the way we were obviously with new PPE and different protocols in the clinic to make sure everyone's distant and everyone is being safe. But wow, thinking back to those early days is quite crazy. So I'm really curious how a large institution documents all of this. I'm oh. thinking, my goodness, how, how do you do that? What, what was the general flow of information into your electronic record? That is a great question. And at the beginning, we thought the same thing. How are we going to do this? Right. But our philosophy is the more documentation, the better, um, especially when it's, we're in Illinois. Um, and with the advent of COVID, we were able to plow through and get teleoptometry covered um, under the emergency mandate, which was very new to us because that wasn't what was done previously. And we just documented everything we normally would. We had online VA charts that we could send to patients and document mm -hmm. VA, even if it's not, you know, our Snell and visual acuity, at least it was something that we could help. Um, with triaging the patient, something to document. Um, we were able to even get patients to do pseudo EOMs. You know, we really tried to be creative, especially when we were able to do video chats. Um, one of the interesting cases that I can remember, we did have a patient that had some subjective um, diplopia 
And it didn't sound serious when we talked to the patient, but we asked for her granddaughter to take her pictures. And we taught her how to take pictures of her EOMs in all positions of gaze. And we could definitely see that there was an abnormality that had to be seen right away. Um, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah. We tried to document everything we could in a traditional exam, um, sure. but virtually. That's, that's fantastic. You have a very unique perspective on what we'd call telehealth, teleoptometry service because of the way you set up some of this um, seat of the pants approach with photographs and video conference calls and that sort of thing with patients. What of that survives into the future? How does urgent care delivered by optometry um, have opportunity to, of course, get reimbursed for the professional care and not sure. miss anything, medical legally and all that, but isn't there a place for it now? What does that look like from your perspective? You have a very special perspective, I think. Yeah, I think there is so much potential in the future to utilize teleoptometry. Now, we haven't quite figured out exactly how to do a lot of things because a lot of the urgent care, quite frankly, the photos, videos, the phone calls, they told us so much about the patient. And it really, I think, we had to take a step back and just listen listening to the patient was the biggest thing. Um, and I found, and perhaps others felt the same, really those photos and videos um, gave us the confidence on the mild cases, um, on how we were managing them and following up and calling and see how they were doing. Um, but on those ones where there was something a little bit more to it, um, it really also taught us that there is so much value with an in-person exam that we cannot replace with the teleoptometry. Um, so I think there's a need for it with triaging, screening, you know, patients that can't leave home, that are scared to leave home, our elderly patients that can't move, disabled patients. Wow, we can do so much virtually. It's wonderful. Being cognizant of the limitations is obviously the first step. But I want to pull out a couple of words, right? It's the, on the follow-ups, there might be some value. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, I, I've seen an episcleritis patient who's had some recurrences um, and she doesn't want to travel, her family doesn't want to travel. Uh, sometimes she's not actually in town, sometimes I'm not in town. And, um, you know, providing that kind of follow-up or review is just... I can't get a slit lamp view of it, but I can get a sense of whether it's changed. You just keep all that in the electronic record. There's there's a way to do it. I think that's kind of maybe a, a thing that's going to happen more in the future. Oh, I agree, Scott. I think that you hit the nail on the head with that one. The follow-up care, especially for routine cases, um, it alleviates the burden for people coming in if they have a different schedule than yours. Um, and yeah, you can just listen and hear how they're doing, if it's better, worse, the same. And you can document in the EHR the photos, the videos as well. Um, and that way, if they have anything that flares up, comes back, you have some sort of reference as well. So the who wants to be a millionaire, million dollar <laughs> question that I'm it. sure is on the minds of everybody is HIPAA. I know you're not a HIPAA expert per se, none of us are, but this idea of photos and video chats, tell us how you at the Eye Care at the Illinois Eye Institute dealt with guidance on that and how it applies today to, uh, you know, somebody might want to use a telephonic device or a video device. What, what kind of general barriers do you put on yourselves? Well, when we, uh, 
first, we're trying to figure out the best way to do it. That was the very first question. How are we going to keep all of this protected for the patient at the end of the day? And what was so interesting, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there have noticed as well, the market just boomed right away. And we had a lot of companies that asked us to demo their products for photography, for videos, um, et cetera. So we really got a lot of different tools to try and to use that were HIPAA compliant. Um, So that's one thing I'd recommend if that's something that um, a practice wants to implement. Um, There are so many wonderful resources out there. And again, that I don't understand all of it, but I want to make sure for the patient's um, safety that everything that we do is HIPAA compliant. So the last part of this conversation has to do with how COVID's affected you personally. This has been an interesting era for you and your family. Mm-hmm. Tell our audience about that, what that was like. <laughs> so in March of 2020, when all of this started, I was pregnant. And as you can imagine, that was an interesting time to be pregnant. Um, and I had a little baby girl in June this Congrats. year. Oh, thank you. Um, But it's very interesting being a new parent uh, in the pandemic. So thank goodness our little girl's thriving. Um, She's so sweet, but it's crazy to think that the only life she knows right now is one of a pandemic. So hopefully soon this will be a distant memory and we have so much great just great stuff ahead of us. But yes, being pregnant in a pandemic and giving birth was definitely interesting. And I had a few people I hadn't really seen in March um, and in February because I was traveling. Um, So when I came back from maternity leave, some of them were like, I never even saw you pregnant. You had a baby? And I'm like, yep. (laughs) Drive through. (laughs) Yep. Well, thank you, Christina. You should be very proud of how you all handled this and never shut down so that the patients could access the Illinois Institute. It's a real pleasure to see that success. Congratulations on all that. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. All right. Thank you. That's uh, our summary with Dr. Christina Moret. Thank you. This is the perspective story of COVID era management of patient care and academic affairs by the Illinois College of Optometry and its clinic, the Illinois Eye Institute. And today's guest is Dr. Eric Mothersbaugh, who serves as Dean of Student Affairs. Welcome, Dr. Mothersbaugh. Hey, Dr. Jens, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm great. And it's been really fun to meet you and so many of the folks at the college and learn about how you've gotten through what I keep calling the COVID era. Were you in the Student Affairs office feeling common concerns from students? What was it like in terms of inbound questions from the students? Yeah, it was, I mean, a, a lot of questions like you would expect, you know, am I, uh, am I going to graduate on time? Am I, am I still meeting the, you know, is the college going to have any accreditation issues, stuff that the academic administration team had to uh, be on top of definitely. And uh, and then on our end, it was, um, it, it was also, you know, an uptick in uh, managing the uh, mental health and insecurities and anxiety stuff that, that, that came along with, uh, with, with, with the pandemic as well. So uh, really, it, did, it didn't necessarily feel like we were doing a lot of different work as far as student support, um, but that we were, uh, I guess, doing more of it across the board and trying to find creative ways to do it with also being able to deliver. Um, we've got a counseling program and we shifted that to telemedicine and 
uh, we had, uh, you know, remote tutoring services taking place. So uh, still, you know, providing the same kind of student support, but finding different ways to do it, basically. I would be really interested in digging just a small bit more on the counseling services. Is that mm -hmm. an in-house service that has traditionally been available and then you shift it to telehealth or does a service uh, provider provide it? Yeah, so we, for the last couple of years now, we've contracted with an outside group that occupies a, a little bit of space inside our building and, and has done, you know, kind of standard 45 to an hour minute long counseling uh, appointments with students that they schedule mm -hmm. privately. Um, so uh, that meant shifting those to video calls, basically, instead of having them in office. But um, we, we don't have, you know, a, a, a counselor on our staff at the college, but we contract the services out. And I think that, that also creates uh, a helpful kind of privacy and division of things, too, that uh, students are, are free to, uh, to take full advantage, knowing that there's not a direct affiliation with the college to with the care they're getting. Now, fast forward to today, are those kinds of services being requested from student affairs in the late part of 2020 as we've advanced through the COVID era? Yeah, it's it, it's probably not, you know, and again, I, I wouldn't necessarily know the root cause of any student choosing to seek or not seek care necessarily, but um, we, we had a, a, a pretty robust amount of activity even before the pandemic. And I, so I think the probably the acute, my life's been turned upside down exacerbations of the, the pandemic, I would imagine are beginning to subside, but there's still all the regular stuff that comes with the stress of dealing with a graduate program. So it's, it's been, um, there's been no change in our, um, you know, capacity and activity um, during, uh, during the shift to virtual. It's still been uh, pretty much every appointment slot being utilized. So students are definitely taking advantage of it, which has been good to see. Well, and it's almost societally across the board that everybody is fatigued. And when you add just the basic lack of social interactions on top of the stress of being an optometry student, uh, I can only imagine that it, uh, again, you don't know why people seek the services, but it's got to be as important to some as it ever has been. So it's really wonderful that you provide that. I'm, I'm kind of off the cuff trying to figure out how independent practitioners who might be watching this might want to use the example of having some support services available to point to as something that they might think of implementing for their clinical staff, right? Because sometimes unless the employer brings it up, it's um, not something that a person might seek. So I think there's a small lesson there. Don't you agree? I, I definitely agree. And I think uh, honestly, from an employer's perspective, it, it could be as simple as just doing a a dive into uh, you know what what health insurance your your team is on and doing a little bit of that legwork of finding out a, a list of providers that are covered under the plan and uh, I, I think if you make access even just reminding people of access that they already have to mental health support uh, can be that helpful kind of subtle nudge as, as to to people to uh, to tap into it I I think there's um, there's that kind of old fashioned mindset of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, tough it out. And uh, that's often not enough when, uh, when we're dealing with, with you know, big real life stressors. Uh, and, and the pandemic is certainly an example of a, a global shared experience, but there's a whole lot of individual personal circumstances that uh, a little bit of support to help through is, um, is, is definitely, definitely makes a big help. I know it's, personally been very helpful to me. I've been seeing a counselor myself for, uh, on and off for several years now, and it, it, it always helps uh, put things in perspective for me. So I, I, that's one of the things interacting with students on a regular basis that 
I'm really grateful about is to seeing the extent to which uh, this new generation of emerging optometrists has uh, destigmatized access to to support resources. It's not uh, no longer perceived as a weakness, but rather as an act of bravery or courage to uh, to admit that a, that a little help would be a good thing. Well, I'm proud of you personally, and proud of you as a student affairs dean to sort of embrace that and meet them where they are and to, to take those steps. Uh, reflect also, I know you aren't directly the overseer of academics. We have other people we talk to about that. But as a student affairs person, those fourth year students were really in a bind. Um, give us a little sense of how that went. And how are you thinking about this coming year, right? Because we, we're closing in soon on the end of 2020. And there's going to be another set of considerations. How has your department overseen the that end of academic career, uh, both at last year and going forward to this year? Yeah, and in, on our end on student affairs, it's a lot of the, you know, logistics of planning, you know, a commencement ceremony, which we switched to, uh, uh, you know, as best as we could scramble together a virtual version last year. I've been working closely with the student leadership in the class that's set to graduate this May to brainstorm through various options that, you know, what their spring ceremony might look like, depending on where we are with vaccine status and all of that. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's about trying to effectively tie a bow on the end of this four year journey that they've been on in a way that's going to be meaningful, despite the, you know, the circumstances and knowing that, you know, a, a, a typically our graduation ceremony takes place at a large venue where we have somewhere between two and 3000 guests. And that's, you know, the, it, as planned is just not a reality of, of, of this era. Um, so it's, it's, you know, working with them to try to create something that's going to be meaningful within realistic expectations um, has been a big part of our work. And, and it really is a, like expectation management. I, I've, I've had to try to, uh, um, you know, communicate um, more frequently and, uh, and, you know, with that right balance of empathy, but also clarity and not, uh, you know, false hope and promising things that are unlikely to be able to happen. Um, but it, it certainly, the, I mean, the biggest thing has been um, on the academic side of confirming that we've got the right patient counts and, you know, examinations are, are all up to date and everything so that from an accreditation standpoint, we can, we're, we're allowed to authorize a diploma that's meaningful. Uh, and then beyond that, it's been student affairs handling a lot of, okay, well, uh, they're working on that. We know that everybody's tracking and, and is set to graduate on time. Uh, but how do we say farewell in a um, in an emotional and meaningful way? Well, let's go to the other end of the academic experience, which is the admissions, the interview process. You oversee much of that. How has that changed? Yeah, that's that. That was a big sudden change for sure. Our our typical, you know, pre COVID nineteen um, admissions experience would be. Um, students come in for a day, they've been scheduled to interview, they fly in, we, we intentionally plan our interviews on either a Friday or a Monday to encourage students to uh, either, you know, stay and spend the weekend after or come and spend the weekend before so they get a chance to check out our awesome city in Chicago and, um, and, and you imagine themselves being there. So we, we try to tell them plan it like a two, three day experience and hit up some restaurants and, uh, you know, we, we connect them with, with current students as ambassadors to, uh, to help them kind of feel at home in the community. And, uh, and then, you know, a, 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 
uh, one-on-one interview with a faculty member and a chance to meet all of our administrative team, uh, talk through financial aid and career development and, and everything. Um, so we, you know, we had, we realized quickly that we were not going to be having any more travel and any visitors. So uh, we had to get, uh, get proficient and creative with video chat platforms to try and create the same thing. And, uh, with, you know, a piece of feedback we get consistently from our current students who have gone through the process and ultimately were admitted and, and chose ICO to uh, where they want to do their education was that interview day experience of getting to interact with people, in, in not, not just folks, you know, current students and administrative folks at ICO, but even interacting with the other applicants mm-hmm. uh, that are also considering the program as meaningful to them. So, uh, so we set up our virtual day to have uh, basically a, you know, a centralized kind of waiting area with with mini presentations and some side chat and and so on, and then um, you know go from there into breakout sessions for the one-on-one interviewing. So we we basically followed the playbook that we had for in person and tried to replicate a digital version of it as much as we could. It's uh, that said, I mean we're what we're talking about doing is trying to convince someone to make a decision for their education for you know four years of time and a significant amount of money. Uh, in some cases, sight unseen. Uh, so it's it, it, it's been you know creating that personal connection as best we can, and then also on the back end, really ramping up our um, you know our online presence with things like video walkthroughs and uh, our social media content to again try to create that sense of this is what it feels like to be here, even though you're not actually here to feel it for yourself right now. Um, so it's been interesting, and certainly it's a um, it's it, admissions and optometry right now is a competitive landscape, even even uh, pandemic aside. So it's uh, it's it, it's been interesting. It's it, on, on the one hand, it's it's definitely a whole set of challenges. But uh, thinking from a business perspective, just kind of like head to head with competitive institutions where we've got a, a top applicant and every school in the country wants them. Um, we don't necessarily have to be we, I don't think the goal is to make it absolutely identical to what the in-person experience with, because there's something you just can't do that. But uh, what we can try to do is have a better web presence than all of our competition. Uh, so that's, that's been kind of the measuring bar of, um, you know, are we trying to pay close attention to what other schools are doing and making sure that we've got, uh, you know, first of all, our own kind of cultural take and twist on things. So it does feel consistent and authentic with the ICO brand. Uh, but then also that we're doing it in a way that's, um, uh, you know, that, that's competitive with with what our neighbors are doing. I want to get back to the other institutions in a second, but quickly, did you also deal with a Sights and Sounds of Chicago deliverable for these uh, applicants? Yeah, that and that's you know the being in the city and in, in in you know a major city like Chicago and in particular in our Bronzeville community on the near south side where we're. Uh, we're, we're serving an underserved population of patients. That's that's a huge cornerstone of what makes ICO ICO. So we've uh, yeah we've we've put together a lot of uh, a lot of content to, to um, you know give give prospective students a chance to understand and feel what that is like uh, through through the student current students' voices as much as possible because it's really their experience that I think is the most relevant and meaningful to prospective students. So I know that there are opportunities for the colleges and schools to interact and perhaps compare notes and even share ideas when it comes to academic and clinical management 
changes that needed to be implemented because of COVID. But you make an interesting point around admissions. That's more of a point of competition. Uh, so you probably do pay attention to what others are doing, but are, is there any best practices sharing or is it a little bit literally of more of a, a walled off competition? It's, it's not a full walled off competition. Um, you know, the, the ASCO community across the board is really good at having engagement. I know that, you know, Dr. Collip, our president is on a, a, I think it's every other week uh, call with all the deans and presidents and most departments have their version of it too. Our academic dean is regularly speaking with the academic officers and, and I regularly meet with the student affairs officers at other institutions as well, where we have our, we, we, we do a monthly group call where all 23 of us get on and, and kind of chat and exchange ideas. We, we jokingly refer to ourselves as the band of rivals because we want both of those things, right? We want to we want to share best practices and understand and make sure that we're really doing right by optometry students for the sake of the profession at large. Uh, but when it comes to things like branding, marketing, admissions, recruitment, uh, there's also, you know, in, in a competitive landscape where there's uh, for years now, a relatively flat amount of applicants in the pool and an increasing number of seats available, there's a... Uh, it, to, to pretend there isn't competition there would be unrealistic as well. So it's it, my, my experience in those monthly calls has been a bit of a kind of a guarded um, amount of sharing, if that makes sense. It, it's, a, you know, all, all 23 of us are trying to learn a little bit more than what we're giving. And, and as a result, the uh, it's not a super robust amount of sharing in that particular area. Well, you know, they say that a, a rising tide should equally lift all boats. And I think in this particular point of view, you want to share enough to know that every one of these institutions has got an ample number of the types of candidates they want and that nobody comes up short. And particularly at a time where there may be different points of view from college graduates about what they want to do in pursuance of a professional career, you want to make sure that you share enough ideas that we have that ample pool. Um, it's not a, a growing pool. We want to make sure it doesn't lessen. So that's a that's a great way to look at it. I'm glad you guys do band together from time to time. Frankly, it's not that different than collaborative but competitive eye care practices banded together in alliance groups where they want to share ideas, but they also want that you know ideal patient or family in the community to pick their practice. I, I think it's a it's a great way to to draw an analogy. Um, as a follow up, do you think any of these changes in admissions say? COVID is you know, behind us one of these days, um, that some of the video components of it, some of the virtual components of it will continue or in an ideal world, would you prefer to go back exactly to the way it was pre-COVID with these nice long weekends and, and more or less all personal interactions? Because we have to read the audience a little bit. Are we, mm -hmm. are we gonna find some permanence to some of these changes in the process? I think we might. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, being in higher ed. It, one of the one of the most important things is to meet the students where they're at, and uh, and you know deliver things uh, in in a manner that's that's going to be the the most resonant with them. And I, uh, I mean, on on the one hand, if you certainly the circumstances that led to an inability to travel are extreme, but there's also some realized savings. When we're talking about, you know, college students or maybe folks that, that had a one-year gap year and are working, but, um, you know, d folks with not a lot of disposable income where, uh, you know, a flight across the country and a couple nights in a hotel, if they're doing that at, on average, most applicants apply to somewhere between four and seven optometry schools, that adds up really quickly and becomes an expensive thing. 
Uh, so it, you know, it, it gives, I think it gives students an opportunity to, um, you know, to check things out and consider places they might not have otherwise considered if they don't have to take on uh, that significant expense to do so. At the same time, I, you know, from again, kind of going back to some of that competitive uh, admissions landscape, I, I like our chances of converting an applicant into an ICO student if they see our campus and and actually feel the energy and interact with students in person. Um, I, I think there's some pieces of that that no matter how well you do it on a video platform, it's always going to be more powerful in person. Or it, it may, maybe that's uh, maybe that mindset will outdate itself over the next couple of decades. Who knows? But that's that's my current perspective anyway. Um, I, I I think what what will what we'll probably end up doing, what I imagine a lot of folks are going to end up doing, is uh, is basically an option. You know, maybe maybe uh, maybe we say we prefer an, an in-person right. interview if you're able to do it, um, but have have the means in place to do it remotely for folks that either uh, can't afford it or it, with time or money or would just really prefer not to. Uh, or because it, it could also be. You know, maybe somebody grew up locally. They're very familiar with the college, and they and they don't need to uh, to physically see it. To, they 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 already know what that feels like, and um, you know, s saving the expense of traveling to do that is um, is good for them. And maybe there's a handful of students from last year's uh, incoming class or a group of admittees that are now first years that you can talk to a little bit about it and and learn a little bit um, of what they're thinking. Yep, absolutely. We've got uh, we once when March hit, uh, our application deadline was in mid, the middle of February. Uh, so when the shutdown in March hit, we were still we were we still had a significant amount of interviews going on. We ended up doing sixty interviews remotely and had done you know a couple hundred uh, in person before that. So within the current first year class, we've got a mixture of. Um, you know, some folks that had the kind of standard experience and also some that had the, the new experience. And uh, it's been good. We've, we've already done a, a pretty good amount of focus grouping and surveying of them to get a feel for it. So we're um, we've got some data to operate from moving forward. Are there any additional unique perspectives from a student affairs consideration that we haven't discussed? You know, the it, we, I think we we alluded to it a little bit, but uh, you know, kind of going back to the overall well-being, mental health side of things within you know what it what it is to be a student in optometry school, um, and I, I know your your audience are primarily optometrists who have who have been through it. Um, it's um, it, it, it's it's hard enough under normal circumstances, but when you add in the stress of the pandemic, it gets much, much harder considering that it's, you know, less interaction uh, with, with things being uh, remote from an academic standpoint, but then also the, not having the social components, the, uh, the, the weekends out with classmates and the, you know, the organized events that we do with student groups on campus. It, it, it has a big, big impact. And, um, you know, I, I've been impressed with um, how creative the students have gotten to recreate some of those social activities in digital spaces as well with, uh, group chats and game nights and 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 all that stuff as well. So it's been, uh, I mean, it's it, it's been a trying time for everybody, but it's uh, it, it's also been really impressive to see how people respond. Well, I'm sure you will concur that this would be an awesome time for practicing optometrists to really talk to their high school and college age students about the strength of academic education, clinical education, and the profession of optometry for a wonderful lifestyle and a, a wonderful way to 
participate in the community, wouldn't you? Absolutely. It's uh, it, it certainly, I, I know this is something you, you are very involved in and talk about a lot, but there, there's big changes with technology coming over the course of the, you know, 30, 40 year career that, that recent grads are going to be having. But um, I, I think if, if we've got folks that are willing to embrace those changes and lean into what the future of the profession is going to look like, um, it's 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 still a really great field to get into for uh, for folks that, uh, that that are shadowing in offices and working as techs that are thinking about it. Uh, it's uh, it, it's definitely a path still worth pursuing. Well, Eric, thank you for sharing these insights. It's really wonderful to hear the success story of how ICO has processed through this COVID era. And we look forward to um, hopefully getting a catch up in the future with uh, you and your team about all the things that you are able to look back on. But for today, uh, congrats on your successes and thank you for taking care of these uh, students that are our future of our of our profession. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. All right.